0: Live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk, Evening with the Expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk may be uh, will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation website at www.thespiralfoundation.org. uh, Original participants and original purchasers of the um, live talk may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. If you are using this talk as a group um, listen, each individual who wants CEUs must purchase their own CEUs by contacting us at the Spiral Foundation. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. And tonight's talk, uh, topic in our Evidence-Based Practice of Sensory Integration series is Applying Evidence-Based Practice to Adults and Adolescents with SPD. And hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Teresa May Benson. I'm the Executive Director of the SPIRAL Foundation, and I'm delighted to be with you this evening to discuss evidence-based practice as it applies to adults and adolescents with sensory processing disorders. So, uh, To begin our talk uh, tonight, uh, let me go over a little bit of what I'm going to cover. Um, I want to talk a little bit tonight about some of the evidence for sensory integration in Um, primarily typical adult populations. Um, In addition to that then, I want to talk about uh, which adults have been identified as having sensory integration problems, what diagnoses, um, what kinds of assessment tools are available for adults with SI issues, um, what kind of uh, functional implications and sensory integration problems we see what kinds of interventions are being used and what some of the evidence is in terms of intervention for that population. So um, hopefully that will uh, give us a pretty broad range of um, topics to cover this evening. So to get started, let's talk a little bit about what some of the literature says about sensory integration functioning in various adult populations. Um, There has been an increase in the literature in general, let me just say, uh, in terms of what is available for adults. And uh, what is kind of exciting about it is that uh, quite a bit of this literature is actually coming from outside of the OT community. So I think there's an, uh, an increased awareness of sensory processing difficulties Uh, outside of OT as well as within occupational therapy. So one of the um, first studies looking at adults, it was a study done by uh, Paul Dunn and Brown in 2003. And uh, let me just comment right now before I forget about it. Uh, We will be emailing all registrants of the course a uh, list of references that I am citing during uh, the call. So uh, don't panic if you don't get all of the different uh, citations. Uh, you will get a citation uh, reference list uh, in the mail. Uh, it may take us about a week or two to get that to you as my assistant is going on uh, vacation uh, the rest of this week, and uh, she won't have a chance to get that out to you this week, but um, you will be getting that. Okay, so. Um, If, uh, okay, so we've got a couple of people with no audio. Let me just type it real quick. Um, I don't want to deal with, uh, all right, Um, okay, so let's go back to the poll done and Brown Um, article. Uh, In this particular uh, study, they looked at sensory processing in older adults. um, And they looked at three groups between the ages of 19 and over the age of uh, 65. And these ended up going uh, to individuals who were over the age of 80. And unsurprisingly, they found that uh, there were differences in sensory processing between these groups. And essentially, older adults noticed sensory uh, information less than young and middle-aged adults. And that was not surprising. In addition to that, middle-aged and older adults engaged in less sensory-seeking behaviors. Again, no big surprise. And as uh, those individuals got older, between the ages of um, 75 and 80, they also noticed less input than those that were under the age of 70. So essentially uh, demonstrating uh, developmental trends as we age. Less sensory seeking, less noticing of sensory information. Now, another study by Brown, Tolufson, Dunn, uh, and others in 2001 used uh, skin conductance or electrodermal responses to look at sensory processing and looked at patterns of sensory processing in conjunction with that. And they found that in these adults that uh, low neurological thresholds uh, on skin conductance were related to low neurological thresholds on the sensory profile, things like sensory sensitivity and sensation avoiding. Generally, those two populations um, tended to respond very intensely to sensory information but um, had different habituation patterns. The sensitivity group did not habituate. Um, On the other hand, the avoiding group um, did habituate. So they felt that these uh, physiological responses confirmed the behavioral categories that were identified on the um, uh, sensory uh, processing measure, Uh, sorry, on the sensory profile. Um, In another study uh, by Dunn et al. in 2015, this was a uh, more recent study, uh, they looked at somatosensation across the lifespan. And this study was done as part of the development of a series of sensory tests for the NIH toolbox. And if you're not familiar with this and you're involved in research at all, the National Institute of Health has developed what they call their NIH toolbox for assessment of neurological and behavioral functions. And the idea behind this was to develop a series of assessments that looked at neurological and behavioral functioning that could be used consistently by All researchers interested in that particular area, okay? And so, uh, Winnie Dunn was involved in the development of some of the sensory processing measures, uh, one of which was the somatosensation. And what they found here was that, unsurprisingly, uh, tactile uh, perception uh, in terms of accuracy improved from young children to young adults and, um, however, from young adults to older adults, the accuracy decreased slightly. And another interesting point was in proprioception, they found that in adults, there were gender differences, with females being more accurate than men. And so, this uh, study really confirmed uh, these changes in somatosensation across time. Now, another person who's done a fair amount of work on adults is um, Bar Shalita. Uh, She has done a number of different studies, and she and Sharon Cermak looked at atypical sensory modulation um, processing and psychological distress uh, in 2016 in a general population. So this is looking at um, a general population with no attempt to identify individuals with disabilities, although some may um, be involved in that. And basically what they found was that those individuals who demonstrated atypical sensory modulation within that um, general population group, that those individuals had more distress symptoms than uh, a comparison group. And that difficulties in sensory responsiveness were related with um, health issues as well as um, mental health conditions um, identified on the brief symptom inventory. And if you're not familiar with the brief uh, symptom inventory, this tool uh, captures a number of different types of mental health concerns. So even in a typical, quote-unquote, average community-based sample, we find that individuals who are more sensory um, over-responsive tend to have more mental health Type symptoms. Now, another individual who's done a fair amount on adults is Engel Yeager. Um, and again, this is a, another therapist from Israel. And she uh, and Winnie Dunn in 2011 looked at the relationship between pain catastrophizing and sensory processing in typical adults. And this idea of um, pain catastrophizing is basically how do people perceive pain um, in terms of how kind of um, upset or how, how big of a response do they have to it? Um, we see this a lot in our children where a little teeny tiny um, bump or cut causes all kinds of big responses, emotional responses, and that would be the pain catastrophizing kinds of things. And essentially what they found was that this uh, higher scores in pain catastrophizing was significantly related to low registration, sensory sensitivity, and sensation avoiding. And particularly in women, they found that women who had high sensory sensitivities had higher pain catastrophizing levels than men. So essentially the more sensory sensitive you are, the more big a deal you're going to make out of um, pain, particularly pain that other people may not feel is um, terribly um, difficult or or particularly um, challenging. So, as you can see, there's quite a bit of information out there even on the typical population. So, the next thing we want to look at then is which adults have sensory integration problems. What does the literature tell us? about what kinds of populations have SI issues. And this literature has started um, back in the 1980s and has continued. Um, Originally, we had some uh, case studies and small sample size studies by Oliver, Reisman and Feeney, uh, Keneally, Oliver, and Wilbarger, and all of them identified sensory defensiveness in adults. Uh, in areas of tactile, movement, visual, and auditory systems. So uh, basically, we have a fair amount of literature at this point identifying sensory defensiveness uh, issues in particular. Um, then more recently, m- myself, May Benson, and Patain, um, along with McCarter and Pfeiffer in their studies, um, had Um, Similar findings to the sensory defensiveness, but also found discrimination problems in the areas of movement, tactile, proprioceptive processing, as well as problems in posture, muscle tone, motor planning skills, and social-emotional skills. So essentially, these individuals um, found that Uh, Adults tend to have the same types of sensory integration, sensory processing problems as we see in children. And um, I and Patane found that uh, when we reviewed case records of adults with SPD, we found little change in their sensory processing from the time that they were uh, in childhood to adulthood. So, uh, according to self-report anyways, uh, many of these sensory integration difficulties don't seem to change significantly across time. Now uh, another study by Johnson and Irving in 2008 uh, looked at incidents of sensory defensiveness in a college population. Now this college population was a self-selected sample um, of students and faculty and staff at a mid-sized New England University. And essentially um, consisted of a lot of young university students, and they found a very high prevalence of sensory defensiveness in this college population. They found that 23% of the sample ha- uh, scored in the definite sensory defensiveness range, and 45% scored in the moderate sensory defensiveness range. So uh, that's kind of you know, combined that adds up to well over 60%. Um, so that's that's quite a very high number of individuals. And what they found was that sensory defensiveness was related to the expression of anxiety and depression in this population. Now, one thing that's quite um, uh, concerning here is is that in 2006, they found uh, there was a study by the National College Health Assessment that identified that 12.7% of college students reported experiencing anxiety and 17.5% experienced depression. Okay. Now, in a more recent study, 10 years later, 2016, it was reported that 60.8% of college students Experienced overwhelming anxiety within the last year, and 10.4% seriously considered suicide. So I think our mental health um, conditions in college students has uh, significantly um, gone up. Okay. Now another study that um, has looked at these mental health issues and sensory issues was Engel Jaeger. And they found that adults with major affective disorders were twice as likely uh, to experience atypical sensory sensitivity, sensation avoiding, and low registration, and five times more likely to experience low sensation seeking than typical adults. So um, depression in particular um, is quite problematic and quite associated with sensory uh, sensitivity issues in particular. Now Brown Com- uh, Cromwell et al. in 2002 identified individuals with schizophrenia as having higher scores on sensation avoiding and low registration uh, and low scores on sensation seeking. So schiz- individuals with schizophrenia um, are very frequently reported to have atypical sensory processing um, problems, especially uh, difficulties with avoiding and low registration. On the other hand, uh, individuals with bipolar disorder also tend to have sensory processing issues, but they tend to have difficulties with sensation avoiding. Okay? And so uh, these very significant mental health issues we frequently see. Now, another thing that we see is that individuals with borderline and uh, avoidant features, so borderline personality disorders and avoidant personality disorders are another mental health condition um, that tend to demonstrate sensory processing issues. And what they found, uh, Meyer and, um, oh boy, I can hardly pronounce the name, Atchenbrenner and Bowles in uh, 2005, uh, they looked at what they called temperament uh, vulnerabilities and attachment experiences. And they found, uh, they called this temperamental sensitivity. Okay, but this was sensitivity to sensory uh, information. And they found that both of the uh, personality disorders, the avoidant and borderline, Uh, were associated with temperamental uh, sensitivity. But they found that there were specific uh, links. So borderline personality disorder was associated with sensitivity to mental and uh, emotional stimuli, whereas the avoidant personality disorder was associated with control and avoidance of aversive stimuli. So uh, the type of... uh, stimuli that was challenging for them uh, did vary. Now, another population that has uh, frequently demonstrated sensory processing issues is obsessive compulsive disorder. And in this particular disorder, uh, Reich and Anderson, uh, they found that adults with OCD scored higher um, on sens- than typical individuals uh, on sensory sensitivity and sensation uh, avoiding um, and they scored lower on low registration or sorry they scored higher on low registration and lower on sensation seeking so uh, again they're demonstrating quite a bit of sensory uh, sensitivity in this area now other populations that we know uh, also have sensory processing issues and we've talked about some of these in Some of the other um, live talks that we've done this year are adults with autism spectrum disorder, um, adults with disabilities, uh, developmental disabilities, and uh, individuals uh, in the geriatric population. So those are some additional uh, diagnoses that may demonstrate uh, particularly sensory processing issues. And I will say that in the adult literature there has been, I think, most emphasis on those individuals who have mental health concerns. And we did a talk on mental health concerns um, recently and uh, covered a lot of that literature. But I think that when we think about adults, uh, those adults with mental health problems are the ones who are probably most likely to seek out um, help for sensory processing issues because they tend to be most uh, debilitating. Now, when we look at assessments, what kinds of things um, are we interested in? Well, most of the assessment tools that are standardized for adults uh, to look at specifically at sensory processing problems are self or caregiver reports. So they are self-report questionnaires. Uh, There are other than the uh, NIH toolbox uh, information, which is not something that's really uh, available for everyday routine clinical use, um, the only measures that we really have that are really standardized for this age group are these self-report questionnaires. And I do think that they're quite important when we work with But on the other hand, um, they also are, uh, have limitations in what they're able to measure. I think we need to still be looking at uh, direct assessment of this population. So some of the questionnaires that are available, used to be all we had was the adolescent adult sensory profile. And now we have... Um, the Adult Adolescent Sensory History, and that measure uh, is uh, produced and uh, sold by the Spiral Foundation. That's a measure that um, I have uh, developed uh, and worked on for years with Dr. Jane Kumar. This is based on uh, the adult sensory history tool that we used clinically for over 15 years. Um, and we've had very good results. It's based on air sensory integration model, not Winnie Dunn's model. Another um, measure that is still in development is the Adult Sensory Processing um, Scale, uh, and this was developed by Erna Blanc, okay? Uh, and that one is just beginning uh, to be uh, developed. Another one that is available um, but is not standardized um, uh, is the Adult Sensory Questionnaire. And this is a measure, uh, it's called the ASQ, this was developed by Moya Keneally and colleagues. Um, The Adult Sensory Interview, what's called the Adult SI, is another um, sensory interview that was developed by Moya Keneally And Oliver. And those two measures um, are available from uh, Moya Keneally. Um, I also make those measures available with her permission through uh, a course on uh, adults uh, that is done through the Spiral Foundation. Now, uh, available is the um, Sensory Integration Inventory by Reisman and Hanshu. And that particular measure is for more involved um, individuals. Now, um, another one that we don't use, tend to use as occupational therapists, but is used more by psychologists is the Highly Sensitive Person Scale uh, by Aaron and Aaron. And um, another one that was developed by Bar Shalita, who I mentioned has done quite a bit, and colleagues, is the Sensory Responsiveness questionnaire the intensity scale. So there are now quite a few different measures um, floating around that you can get your hands on um, to help with uh, identification of adults with sensory uh, processing issues. Now in terms of motor performance um, and direct assessment, there's very little that is standardized for this age. Uh, The BOT2 is available for adolescents and young adults and goes up to age 21, uh, 11, uh, but is not uh, uh, normed for older populations, okay? Um, The SIPT is not normed for older populations but is often used uh, with older populations. And uh, the new EASY uh, that is coming out, the Evaluation of Air Sensory Integration, They are looking at uh, trying to norm that test at least through age 12 right now. And uh, the hope is is that at some point that will be available uh, for uh, older populations as well. So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of choices um, for the uh, adults other than the self-report. And basically, we end up needing to use uh, evaluations um, for children. And uh, doing a lot of good uh, clinical uh, observations of that. Now, uh, the next thing that we want to talk about is what does the literature say about functional implications of sensory integration problems in adults with SPD? So, we know that sensory processing issues are related to anxiety, depression, um, other types of mental health concerns, but what else do we know about some of the functional ramifications of sensory processing issues? Well, the literature um, has shown um, via CERMAC, uh, Gusen, Borger, and Cousins & Smith, these are older studies, but they demonstrated um, quite a while ago that motor problems in children with SPD persist into at least adolescence. So, if you're seeing a child who has motor uh, coordination problems and praxis issues, those types of motor difficulties are not going to go away as an adult. Um, They continue to persist into adulthood, and we're going to end up with adults with uh, motor performance problems. Now, um, David, uh, McCarter, Pfeiffer, Reisman, and uh, Feeney, we've mentioned them before, They've looked at case studies of adults with SPD and they found that not only did they have childhood difficulties in sensory processing, um, but those individuals also had problems in areas of motor coordination, um, early childhood colic, uh, prematurity, feeding problems, and delayed walking. So these early childhood difficulties can be markers um, for later uh, difficulties even as adult. And uh, myself and Patain found uh, of the adults that we examined that 50% of them had frequent and recurrent ear infections um, throughout childhood and into adulthood. So these, uh, I, uh, continuing ear infections is something that uh, we see quite a bit in children, but it's also a uh, potential problem in adults as well. Now, another study was conducted by Hoffman and Bittrin, and they looked at sensory sensitivity uh, in relationship to social anxiety. Uh, One of the things we hear frequently from uh, the mental health community is that, well, the sensory processing stuff, the sensory defensiveness is just anxiety. You know, it's, it's really just a mental health issue. And what they found, uh, what Hoffman and Bittrin found, was that sensory sensitivity was really distinct uh, from social anxiety and that uh, the more generalized the social anxiety was, the more sensory sensitive they were, Um, whereas individuals who had very specific anxiety problems tended to uh, be much less generally sensory defensive. Now they also found that uh, individuals who were sensory avoiding um, tended to have sensitivities related to uh, harm avoidance and agoraphobia. So you know these avoiding behaviors um, are tend to be related with sensory avoiding uh, behaviors. Now another um, author, Leif et al found that, uh, again, that sensory sensitivity predicted anxiety and depression, again, supporting the mental health connection. Um, But another thing which was quite interesting about that study is they looked at highly sensitive young adults. And what they found was that these highly sensitive young adults were more negatively responsive to parenting styles that they perceived as being uncaring. Okay, So the parents may have been perfectly caring, but the way that they came across to the child that if the child perceived them as uncaring, they tended to have more negative um, responses and higher sensory sensitivity. They also found that um, sensory sensitivity could interact with environmental factors to result in an increased anxiety or depression. The important piece there was that uh, environmental factors um, could increase the anxiety or the depression um, when the individual was very sensory sensitive. Now, in another study, Jerome and Lise looked at adult romantic attachments and they found that sensory sensitivity was related to uh, relationship anxiety and that sensory avoidance was related to relationship avoidance. So the upshot of this particular findings was that an individual's sensory sensitivities uh, impact not just them, but it impact, re, impacts relationships with significant others. And as someone who's worked with uh, adults for most of my career, this is one of the biggest referral reasons that we get adults with sensory processing issues, is they are concerned about their relationship with their significant other. Either A, they're not able to sustain a relationship or they are married um, and they're having intimacy difficulties um, or they're having relationship difficulties um, that tend to center around the sensory defensive person's um, sensory sensitivities. Now, another area that we tend to see difficulties in is in adolescence. Um, Snyder and Shang found that um, young male adolescents who were prone to delinquency. So these were in, uh, young men who were in um, uh, the uh, – I'm losing the words um, – they were in the juvenile justice system for juvenile delinquency. So they were had done some things that weren't terrible but were kind of uh, being watched. They found that these young men had problems with praxis and vestibular difficulties. So there was a relationship between these sensory processing problems and um, being prone to behaviors that are uh, frequently referred to as being delinquent um, behaviors. So these would often be uh, things like breaking and entering, using drugs, fighting, stealing, um, basically a lot of things that were thrill-seeking kinds of behaviors. Now we also found uh, with Wagner, found that males, uh, young males who were, um, had high sensory seeking were much more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior and reckless driving. Okay? So, individuals who are high in sensory seeking engage in, no big surprise, activities that are thrill-seeking. Okay? In addition to that, um, they found that uh, sensory seeking was a significant predictor of substance abuse. And I will say that um, this is something I feel like I've personally experienced as well. Um, at one point in in my career, I did a fair amount of work with teenagers, young men in particular, uh, 16, 17 years old, who were referred to us from the juvenile justice uh, system uh, for uh, sensory processing problems. And many of them were young men who had uh, had been engaged in some of this thrill-seeking kind of behavior. And I actually asked one of the young men one time, well, you know, why do you do, why do, you do marijuana? Why do you do drugs? And, well, you know, what do, why do you engage in, you know, he was um, house, breaking into houses and, and stealing. And he said, well, he said, when, I'm, when I do drugs, it's the only time I'm calm." but he says i need the thrill of these you know the breaking into the house it gives me a rush and so you know these behaviors um i think were very related to sensory processing now another thing that um the study has studies have found is is that adults with spd are likely to be at an increased risk for physical illnesses Now, Benham found a relationship between sensory sensitivity and self-perceived stress and physical symptoms of poor health. Uh, Jawar also found that sensory sensitive women uh, were more reactive to loud sounds and bright lights, uh, more often had a history of trauma of some sort, and had a higher incidence of allergies, migraine headaches, chronic and debilitating pain, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and depression. So we see a lot of health-related issues, especially with sensory defensiveness. And physiologically, this makes a lot of sense, although no one has specifically looked at this, because um, sensory defensiveness puts one in a state of um, high arousal, in flight, fright, and fight. And when you're in that high state of arousal, you are putting out a lot more um, cortisol levels. And high cortisol levels are associated with autoimmune disorders, um, such as fibromyalgia, um, headaches, migraines, all of these kinds of um, immune-related issues. So I think a lot of this... um, pain and health-related issues is due to the high cortisol levels that we probably see in our adults, especially with sensory defensiveness. Um, another area that we've looked at was by uh, McCarter, Moore, and Henry, who um, found that uh, poor sensory processing and poor motor coordinations uh, were related to problems with occupational choices. And these included difficulties obtaining and sustaining employment, and uh, engaging in leisure activities. And uh, myself and Patane, um, in our study, we found that over half of our study uh, participants chose to be homemakers, um, specifically because of their sensory processing difficulties. They found that it was very challenging to hold down a job and so they chose to stay at home. Um, And these uh, women all had advanced educational degrees. So these were all very intelligent women um, who really wanted to be doing more, but who chose to work at home because of their sensory processing problems. And two of our participants um, said that their sensory processing uh, issues affected their intimate relationships with their significant others to the point that it interfered with their ability to have, have babies, to, to get pregnant. And so that's a pretty big functional consideration um, for women who are sensory defensive. Now, one other area that uh, we often don't think about in relationship to functional impact is the negative impact of a mother's sensory processing problems on parenting their children. And Hofner, Cohn and Kumar looked at the impact of mothers with sensory defensiveness and how that their own sensory defensiveness impacts their parenting style with their children with SPD. And they found that uh, these parent, mothers reported difficulties parenting during meal times, waking and bedtime routines, and participation in child-selected leisure activities. And that their mother's difficulties, especially when they conflicted with the sensory needs of their child, affected the whole family. And so this issue of um, sensory processing not only impacted the mother, but also impacted how that mother was able to parent their child. And the mothers were able to identify some strategies that they used uh, to maintain their own sensory processing uh, while meeting the needs of their family. They found that they were able to use various coping strategies. They were able to manage and control aspects of the environment like noise or visual stimuli. Um, It did help to understand their child's sensory processing style and how that matched or mismatched with their own and um, also understanding what was needed to allow their child to function. Um, some of them, uh, they t- also talked about often needing to hide their feelings and basically just grin and bear it. And lastly, needing to have time alone to regroup and rejuvenate on their own. Now, uh, another uh, study that looked at functional implications was by Keneally, Oliver and Will Barger in 1995. And they did a phenomenological study of sensory defensiveness in adults. And they found that the adults identified six coping strategies. And many of these were similar to the mothers. Uh, They tended to avoid activities that were challenging. They um, used a lot of predictability to control their situation, routines. They needed to mentally prepare um, for the stimuli, so if they knew they were going to go, to, say, to a very busy party, they would mentally prepare for that. They would talk through uh, and do uh, cognitive rationalizations to reassure themselves that uh, stimuli could be handled appropriately. Um, they also used a counteraction by engaging, engaging in primarily proprioceptive activities um, to help Reduce negative effects, and uh, they confronted um, a problem and tried uh, and developed a plan to overcome it. So there were some very clear uh, strategies that often took a lot of cognitive energy um, by these adults in order to function. Now, Keneally, Koenig, and Smith uh, in 2011 also found. A relationship between sensory over responsivity or defensiveness on symptoms of anxiety and depression and indicators of quality of health. Okay, so health related quality of health issues like physical functioning, mental health, um, emotional functioning, um, and social functioning uh, were areas that were problematic. Now, Pfeiffer Keneally. Uh, Reed and Herzberg, in 2005, looked at adults with Asperger's syndrome. Uh, And they found a relationship as well between sensory defensiveness and anxiety, Um, where, on the other hand, in this population, uh, depression was related to hyposensitivity. Um, They also found a relationship between sensory processing and uh, overall adaptive behavior, okay? So these were adaptive behaviors at the academic, leisure, social skills uh, kinds of levels. So lots of different kinds of things happening here that functionally impact the performance of these adults. Now, Benham um, found a relationship between stress and physical symptoms of ill health uh, in sensory sensitive Uh, individuals, Um, Ballard in 2015 uh, examined what was called sensory dissonance, uh, which is very similar to sensory defensiveness, and they found that uh, there was a relationship between uh, a person's experiences of sensory dissonance dissonance, and negative mental uh, states and distress as well as poor mental health. And so again, that relationship between health issues, mental health issues and sensory defensiveness. Now another one uh, was this study by uh, Meredith Bailey et al. in 2016, and they found a relationship between attachment anxiety and sensory sensitivities. So this study was quite similar to one of the previous studies which looked at uh, relationship issues, um, but this specifically looked at adult attachment. Um, and these were in healthy adults. Uh, so this is a population where you would not have expected to seen uh, a lot of problems. Um, another um, person that looked at um, outcomes in adults was Clince, Conley, and Nolan in 2016. And they looked at uh, sensory processing patterns and higher education um, uh, students with attention deficit disorder and autism. And they found that uh, children with uh, young adults or young students with uh, attention deficit disorder um, had higher scores on the adult adolescent or the adolescent adult sensory profile than students with ASD in relationship to sensory seeking. But interestingly, there was no other difference between uh, students with ADHD and students with ASD. So that was quite interesting that um, both of those populations tended to demonstrate similar um, sensory processing patterns. Now um, again, individuals with schizophrenia, they Individuals with schizophrenia were looked at by uh, Lipskaya, uh, Velikovsky, uh, Barshalita, and Bart in 2015. And they found that uh, these adults with schizophrenia who were also sensory defensive, um, who... uh, They had sensory modulation problems, were under-responsive, had low satisfaction with activity performance and activity participation. And so um, they were basically identifying that uh, the individuals with sensory processing problems participated less in daily life activities than those uh, without. This was um, quite similar to a study done by Pfeiffer, Brusilovsky, Bauer and Salzer in 2014. And they looked at participation um, in adults with serious mental illnesses and found a significant relationship between low levels of participation and high levels of low registration and sensory sensitivity on the sensory profile. Now. Um, Another study, uh, which was interesting, looked uh, by Good and uh, Stanger and McNulty in 2012. They found uh, looked at uh, needy families, okay, especially mothers who were in a temporary assistance program, and they found that those uh, uh, p- uh, mothers who had sensory processing difficulties. Uh, particularly those that had high scores and low registration, um, were associated with low motivation to cook, whereas low scores on sensation seeking were associated with a lack of leisure skills, and high scores on sensation avoiding were associated with long periods of staying in bed or avoiding treatment. So again, these sensory processing patterns were associated with very important daily living skills. Um, I mentioned that Engel Yeager uh, has done a, quite a bit uh, on adults, and another study that she was involved in in 2015 found that uh, sensory processing difficulties um, in adults with PTSD interfered with that ability to perform, uh, to form intimate relationships. So again, difficulties with uh, those um, interpersonal relationships. And then as we kind of get to the a- end of this section, the last study I wanted to talk about in this area was that um, was by Stolls, Van Heerden, Van Jarvesveld, and Nell in 2013. And what they found was that atypical sensory processing patterns were related to how adults, respond to anger situations or interpersonal conflict. Um, They found that high-low registration was associated with aggression, and high-sensation avoiding was associated with anger suppression. So those individuals who had very poor sensory registration, who did not perceive information very well, were more likely to be aggressive and to seek out in an aggressive way uh, and respond to anger situations or conflict with aggression, whereas individuals who are very highly sensory sensitive were more likely to hold their anger in and to suppress it. All right, that brings us then to interventions. What do we know about interventions? Um, There has been um, a lot more information on interventions in recent years compared with what we have seen in the past. Uh, So first of all, I want to talk just briefly about what interventions are used with adult populations, and then we'll talk briefly about the uh, research on it. So first of all, yoga is something that has been used um, uh, a fair amount with adults. Another area uh, that has been looked at in terms of interventions are uh, sensory-based interventions in psychiatry, such as sensory rooms, sensory carts, um, weighted blankets, um, these kinds of things. Another area, which interestingly um, has been looked at by non OTs, these are in psychology, uh, were done by Fisher, Holland, and uh, all in 2009. They looked at an intensive auditory training uh, program using computer exercises to improve um, cognitive processing and psychosocial functioning. Um, Henriksen used blue light blocking glasses with adults with bipolar that found improvements in symptoms and sleep hygiene. And Popoff used um, cognitive training with a focus on sensory experiences to normalize auditory processing um, difficulties. So there are quite a few interesting um, strategies. Now. Um, The research on the use of sensory rooms in inpatient psychiatric settings uh, is growing uh, in uh, supporting its use to reduce uh, seclusion and restraint and to help manage aggression. Um, Also to help decrease uh, anxiety, weighted blankets have uh, been found to decrease anxiety. we also see a use of um, six-week SI programs with adults with schizophrenia. Uh, with, uh, uh, SI programs have also been used with uh, patients with PTSD with positive results. Uh, Moore and Henry used the Wilbarger protocol uh, to decrease uh, sensory defensiveness in women with self-injurious behaviors. And um, Blakeney, Strickland, and Wilkinson looked at sensory integration um, functioning in schizophrenia and found that a six-week program of sensory integration activities improved overall functioning in non-paranoid schizophrenic patients and allowed them to participate more in other areas. Now, one other um, area that has been looked at is been by Ben Avril. Um, and Engel um in 2012. And they found that um, there were associations between sensory processing um, and interpersonal relationships and found that uh, an interdisciplinary treatment approach that takes into consideration sensory processing um, really was beneficial in improving a wide range of symptomatology, including anxiety, somatis- somatization, distress, and demoralization, um, So, and quite a few things. So those are a few of the studies. A lot of treatments are really geared towards adults with sensory defensiveness. Um, now, in terms of evidence for sensory-based interventions, Um, Stoller et al. in 2012 um, showed positive results um, for the use of sensory-enhanced Hatha yoga. Um, Padilla and Domina in 2016 um, actually looked at uh, individuals who were in a coma and persistive vegetative states after traumatic brain injury and found that sensory stimulation was effective in improving their arousal state. So that's uh, quite a different population. Um, Champagne developed a sensory modulation intervention program uh, for mental health practitioners that uses groups, um, self-individual treatment, uh, sensory motor activities, sensory-based modalities, sensory diets, environmental enhancements and modifications. they found uh, she found that this program was helpful in improving um, occupational engagement and work performance. Um, Pfeiffer and Keneally um, probably have uh, done some of the most work in this area. They found a three-component um, home-based, uh, program, a home program-based treatment protocol for adults with sensory defensiveness help to improve the patient's insight into their sensory defensiveness as well as improved engagement in physical activities. Um, I personally have found um, and that an integrated intervention program that's composed of both clinical and ho based interventions um, has been um, very successful um, over, over the years that I've practiced with improving performance in adults. And um, myself and Moya Keneally proposed uh, another uh, intervention approach for adults um, looking at a combination of the kinds of strategies uh, that she worked on. And then lastly, um, I've written uh, an article for OT Practice that promotes a model for direct intervention. Um, for adults uh, with sensory processing issues that addresses um, a wide range of sensory processing difficulties, including uh, discrimination and praxis-related issues. But uh, we don't have any specific research on that particular area. So, whew, that's what we have. Um, It's amazing how much more research there is now in this area um, when I started looking into the research um, in adults uh, with sensory uh, issues uh, there were maybe half a do- uh, maybe a dozen articles um, that address this area and now we have probably 30 or 40 50 articles Uh, related to sensory processing in adults. So I think this is really a growing area of practice uh, and one that we really need to be looking at. And I think that we also need a lot more research to look at sensory discrimination problems and um, postural and motor planning problems in these populations because they don't go away just because our children grow up. Um, Adults learn to work around it Um, more. And that takes a lot of cognitive energy. And I think that the impact on jobs uh, and uh, job performance and ability to uh, obtain and maintain jobs is particularly challenged for those with uh, praxis-related issues. And this is what I've seen in my own clinical practice as well. So that wraps up um, what I have for you tonight. Um, I will... Take questions if anyone has questions and would like to type type them in. Um, I will also, for those of you who are on the phone, um, I'm going to unmute you at this point. Okay, and feel free to ask questions. If there's too much background noise, I'm going to mute the phone calls, um, but um, I'm going to open them up now. Well, I tried, unmute, wait a minute, there we go. There we go, okay, so we have the phone lines. If anyone's on the phone who has a question, I'll be happy to take any questions. And anybody who wants is on the computer and would like to type in a question, please feel free to do that at this point now too. Anybody? I have a question. Sure, go ahead. I'm Julie Driscoll in Boston. Hi, my my question is: Is there is upon your all your uh, research, um, looking at all the different research, have you looked at things about intervention and the correlation with ethic, if if it's effective? Um, I'm sorry, the correlation between intervention inter- and efficacy. Oh, efficacy of interventions. Yes, because a lot of times we use sensory diet and we use the Wilberger. We use all different methods, but there's just so much contextual considerations to qualify it that interfere with the qualification. So the right, chronic, you know, so yeah. Comes- so the the research really has shown um, that in adults, where you use the Wilbarger <laughs> approach in conjunction with a sensory diet, an individualized sensory diet. Um, that that is quite effective. Now, a lot of the research is low level, it tends mm-hmm. to be um, case studies or a small number case series but that's not unusual with adult literature um, given the small number of adults that we deal with. But it, it's quite uh, consistent, the positive okay. effects that uh, is in the literature with those. And you're going to get in the the reference list that you'll get are all of the studies. Mostly those have been done by um, uh, Henry and uh, Moya Keneally and Beth Pfeiffer, um, that kind of, those those individuals. Okay? Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Now, I've got another question. um, Examples of the activities in the six-week program. You know what? I do not know that I have those. Um, I am sorry about that. The information that I have from the article does not list the specific treatment activities. I did not write them down. Um, The uh, studies that did this were by Blackney, Strickland, and Wilkinson in 1983. Um, They did. um, uh, a study with um, adults with schizophrenia, okay? Um, and you can pull, you'll get that reference in your list, and uh, so you can look that up. And there was another one, who was it? Um, there's another six-week program. A lot of these programs, as I recall, oh, there it is, yeah, Blakely, Strickland, and Wilkinson. Um, a lot of these programs have used things that were more sensory activity-based, so um, probably a lot of the kinds of things you think of when working with geriatrics, um, yeah, that kind of activities, uh, you know, shaving cream, brushing, um, sensory diet types activities, that kind of thing. Um, but I don't have the specifics for that particular article. I'm sorry. About that. Okay. Anybody else have questions? Anybody else on the phone I'm getting some background noise. So, if there's no one that has a question on the phone, I'm going to mute you. No? Okay. And any other questions that people want to type in? No. All right, well, I hope that this was interesting and informative. I know there's a huge amount of of information happening there, Um, but hopefully this will get you on the road to understanding better um, the wide range of things that are going on in the adult literature. And uh, I thank you all for being with us tonight. Okay, our time is up. We'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, Watch our website and mailing list for more details. Thank you to our participants for joining us for our live talk uh, in our sensory integration and evidence-based practice series. Watch our website at www.thespiralfoundation.org for our next live talk presentation and uh, to obtain copies of past programs. And everybody have a great evening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.